0: There's an explosion of data that's happened over the last 10 or 20 years that go into real-world evidence. And more data are likely to come as we live with smartphones, and those data get integrated into electronic health records. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'll be joined today by Dr. Mark Berger. Dr. Berger is on the scientific advisory board of several companies for real-world evidence. The reason he's on those boards is because he started the real-world data and analytics group at Pfizer, Since then, he also has become a special advisor to places like ISPOR, the pharmacoeconomics group. Taming the healthcare data explosion next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Dr. Mark Berger, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast.
1: Thank you.
0: Give me a bit of your background. I know part of it, but I don't know the whole of it. You are a medical doctor. That's not everything you've done.
1: No, I left academia back in 1988 and joined Merck, where I did five years of phase two and phase three clinical trials. And then I moved into outcomes research, where I've been ever since. I was at Merck for a long time, and then I was at Eli Lilly, and I spent a little brief time at Optum Insights, which is part of United Health Group. And I finished up my career at Pfizer, where I founded their Real World Data and Analytics Group. And throughout that time, I have been working with large databases of healthcare data, doing the kind of research to look at the effectiveness and efficiency of what we get out of the investment we're making in healthcare.
0: How long ago did you start? Were you the first person that started the real-world evidence group at Pfizer, or was that something that was already ongoing? No,
1: no, I was the first person to start it. And it's not like this was a completely new idea, but many companies had quite a few groups working on and using real-world evidence or real-world data. But they didn't have a centralized organization that was helping them to license the data, looking at ways to make it much more easy to interrogate the data and have specific expertise in what are the cutting-edge methodologies to analyze the data. And so we built a small group that was really facilitating a whole bunch of organizations within Pfizer across different divisions. were able to accelerate their use of real world data on a much more routine basis.
0: Was your experience at Optum what really led you into that? I'm saying that because as somebody who works with insurance companies and helping negotiations with insurance companies over price and rebate for pharma companies, what I do know is that when we make a value proposition deck, something that explains why we might want the insurance company or the insurance company might want to have a product on formulary, we often use Optum data because it's one of the best data sources that might be out there in terms of the full electronic medical records of the patient so you can track them. They take the drug. This is what happens. Is it just a lucky coincidence that you worked at Optum or was that what led you into being able to take that role at Pfizer?
1: No, I just think it was a lucky coincidence. When I left Lilly, I was invited to join Optum as a senior scientist And I had used Optum data for years as well, and I just thought it was a great opportunity to look under the hood. I was on the consulting side of the United Health Group, which is Optum, and saw how they were using data and not only using the data for external clients, but also helping the medical side of the organization to use it for designing benefits and delivering disease management programs. What I learned was that, number one, Optin was an incredibly huge company, and incredibly huge companies are somewhat at a loss to have smooth integration of efforts across their organization. But I also got to see that the overarching business plan for United was one that made a lot of sense, that if you looked at the spectrum of care that was being delivered by different providers. You could rank them from the ones that use the most services, the most expensive, the least expensive. And you could look at the ones that had the best outcomes, the ones that had the worst outcomes. And what they really wanted to do was promote those providers who had the best outcomes and did it most efficiently, least expensively. And that was a sweet spot where they could drive patients to. And they certainly did that with certain specialty care, where they had arrangements with different specialty centers. An example would be something like Memorial Sloan Kettering, the cancer in New York, where they recognized that they had better outcomes there and were able to negotiate contracts to make sure that they were getting it for a good price. They could send patients there with the hope that they would get better outcomes for less cost.
0: Did you worry about basically adverse selection with these physicians? What I mean by that is, if you look at lawyers and you look at how many times they win cases, some lawyers win a lot of cases. Other lawyers, even famous ones like Clarence Darrow, lost a lot of cases. But that's because he took hard cases, including the Scopes Monkey trial. He lost that case.
1: Absolutely, I was making this a simple analysis. But clearly, you have to adjust the case mix, and we understand that. Still, you can get a fairly good sense of the heterogeneity in outcomes and the heterogeneity in costs that you were looking at, and it wasn't used as a precise measure. But it did give you some guidance to think about and look at where you think you had providers who were doing it the best way.
0: Yeah, and setting aside the odd cases that I might mention, as that one, now it's like cybermetrics or something like that, where you're using statistics in baseball and making better decisions. It's moneyball, frankly, in a real way for Optum in this case. And I'm guessing you brought that same skill set or same sensibility in some ways to Pfizer.
1: Well, Pfizer was a new challenge for me because. Throughout my career, I'd mostly been involved with doing publishable research. And what had changed over time was that the quality and quality of data had exploded. For most of the time, all you had was claims data. Then you had EMR or EHR data.
0: That's electronic medical records.
1: Electronic health records. Yeah. And that got substantially better over time. And then you started to get lab data. And then you got other kinds of data, whether it be socioeconomic data or healthcare purchasing behavior data, all different kinds of data. And there were two challenges. One challenge was, how do you look across these different data sets if you couldn't integrate them? And could you integrate these data sets? And then the second question is, how do you not get lost in this explosion mountain of data, and how do you begin to ask simple questions on a very rapid basis that allows you to, over time, formulate better questions, and how can you do that in a way that is understandable to your end users who want to make decisions off of the insights you get out of the data? The big thing that I did at Pfizer was to not only create my third data mart, I created one at Merck, I created one at Lilly, obviously Optum had one, but I created a data mart at Pfizer and created a governance around that and put APIs on top of that that allowed very rapid queries to be made into the data and across data sets.
0: Can I just pause you there? Data mart? That's not a term I've heard. What is a data mart?
1: So it's a very old term because it shows how old I am. They might call it a data lake now. A data warehouse is where everything is put into the same format. A data mart is a location where everything can be in its own format, but it's all accessible through the same portal.
0: Got it. And then you said APIs, like active pharmaceutical ingredients? Or no, there... no.
1: Application program interface.
0: Oh, I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs>
1: These are ways that you can interrogate the data without having to write code. For a long time, most of the places I've worked at, we used SAS to write programs to interrogate the data, and that required a special skill set. Either you had data analysts or statisticians who would be doing that programming to analyze the data. Now you could create analytic programs without having to write any code by having object-oriented drag-and-drop programs. Mm -hmm. And so you could pull together a relatively quick query yourself without having to go to a specialist and get your answer within minutes and have an ongoing conversation with an end user while you're sitting there right with them.
0: So you're working at Pfizer. You're being clever about data that are exploding and making them usable to humans. What did you learn there, and what did you take from that as you're thinking about real-world evidence and real-world evidence in the future?
1: The biggest challenge is is that although there are lots of data sets that one can access, it costs a lot of money to access them. We've noticed. And big companies like Pfizer, even they have trouble and think three times, do you need to buy access to this data set? Are you buying access to the data set or just a cut of the data? How are we going to see that this is a good investment for us in terms of building our capability. And so though there are many data sets available, they are not available to everybody because people do not have the licensing money to do that.
0: Is there a company or companies out there that are just known as being the ones that are data freaks and they just get a bunch of them and they work off the data and others that are not so much?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. It's all over the spectrum. Some companies have built, after we started our real-world center at Pfizer, A number of other companies also started their own real-world data centers in their companies. And some companies went so far as saying, I know I see a data set that I want to have direct access to, and I'll buy it. So Roche bought Flatiron for a lot of money because they made the judgment that Flatiron had the richest, deepest, best curated oncology data that was available at the time. And they knew that was important to the future of their company. Having said that, as I look to the future, there are changes on the horizon. And that is, you have to ask the question, who really owns this data? Companies that collect data and curate it and add to it believe that they have intellectual property rights over that data. But also patients have rights over that data, too, because it's about them and it's their data. And when you go to a hospital and they collect data on you, you're allowed to get access to your data. Or if you go to a physician, you get allowed to get access to your data. Now, people make it difficult, but the fact is you have rights to have access to that data. And now there is some new legislation that has been passed in the last couple of years, which is requiring data aggregators to allow patients to download their data into applications like the Apple Health application that's on your Apple iPhone. And these vendors are going to be required to make that data available. Now, they're not happy about this because they think that this could undermine their business model, and they're also raising concerns, well, how do we know your data is going to be HIPAA protected you know, and people are not going to get access to your data? But the fact is, more and more people are going to demand access to their data. And instead of having to go to large data vendors, you may be able to go directly to patients and aggregate their data together to get data sets on a much less expensive basis.
0: Wow. If you don't need comprehensive data, if you just need representative data?
1: If you have access to your EHR data and you have access to your claims data, and it all is identified to you as the patient, the only thing that you're missing there is the curation that may have been done by the claims aggregator or the EHR aggregator? Well, you can do a lot of curation after you get the data from patients. This is not rocket science, and you can end up with relatively good data assets that will not require paying millions of dollars of fees to aggregators. This is where we're going to end up going. At some point, data will be ubiquitous and relatively inexpensive. It's not the data that you will be able to get It's how you can use that data effectively that's going to separate different companies in the marketplace.
0: You know what else we're going to get if it goes to the patient as being the source of the data? Patients themselves, because they're people and they're online or they're just out in the world going to their local Kroger and swiping cards. There's a lot of purchasing data. There's Amazon data on that particular person. That's not a HIPAA or privacy law problem. There's a lot of data around them. And if that patient sells that person's own information.
1: Yes, patients are starting to use a lot of applications on their phones. And they're recording data about their symptomatology, how they feel. And that patient-reported data will also be added into the mix of the EHR data and the claims data. And so going to end up with a richer data set. And even Google or Microsoft or whoever who is collecting data on you they will find themselves in the future being required to let customers or consumers have their data. So even though we sign off a waiver that says they can use the data for such and such and so and so, it doesn't mean that they're going to be allowed to hold that all to themselves forever and a day. Hmm. Data will become ubiquitous and it will become free flowing.
0: One of the barriers that we have from advertising maybe a good one is that we know a lot about a patient who's deidentified and we may know a lot about a person who is identified, but those things don't match up. At least they usually don't.
1: Right. And the person who can match it up is the patient. Correct. Because the patient will say, I filled this out on my health application that I've been tracking for myself, and I have my EHR data, and I have my claims data, and if you tell me, organization, you're going to be using this to do good research that's going to help improve patient outcomes and make patients get better healthcare, I'll let you have access to that, and I probably won't charge you. And people are aggregating data today, so Patients Like Me has set up a company where patients voluntarily gave a ton of their own self-supported data because they knew that they could get contact with other patients with their rare diseases, and they could learn about them, and Patients Like Me was able to do quite good research off of that data set, and publish it in good peer-reviewed journals.
0: We're already to the point that if we have a likely diabetic patient, that if you wanted to get messaging to that patient, that's a click that can be potentially worth dollars as opposed to pennies. If it's not just a likely patient, but we know because the patient told us, then that seems extraordinarily valuable.
1: The hidden part of all of this is that all of this data is going to be out there, and much of what you sent out there. Can become known by other actors who don't want to have access to your data. We have the illusion of privacy and we have the illusion of security, but I've noticed is over the last six years saying that my private data was hacked from my bank, my private data was hacked from the federal government. That's financial data, which I actually care more about because I don't care if anybody knows my medical history, I just don't want them to drain my bank account out.
0: Sure. Where do we go from here, both in this conversation (laughs) and in the world of real-world evidence?
1: The next place to go is, is this data fit for purpose and who can use it? A lot of end users are using it and have been using it for years. Healthcare providers and big ones like United Optum are using it now to design clinical programs and benefit designs. They're not the only one. Everybody been using that for years. And Regulatory agencies have been using safety information for years to update labels. Where this is going in the future is, can we start using this data to better understand in the real world, can we make individualized choices for therapies for specific patients? And how do you make those decisions? And is the data good enough to make those decisions? And in the short run, that issue is being grappled with. By regulatory agencies that are saying, is this information good enough to give us evidence that we trust enough to allow us to make decisions about the effectiveness of drugs? That still remains somewhat controversial. Part of it has to do with the fact that the data has to go through multiple steps of curation before you get an analyzable data set. And there's not been full transparency about how curations are being done by different data aggregators. And what is good enough has not been established as a, a uniform standard. So the first thing that has to happen over the next couple of years is for regulatory agencies to feel comfortable that how the data is collected and the understanding that you have the provenance of the data and that you actually can go back and check key endpoints to see if what actually is recorded is actually what happened, that they can have confidence that this is regulatory-grade data to make decisions on. And then the second step after that is once you're convinced your data is of good enough quality, then you need to say, what kind of questions can we ask and reliably answer? I certainly can answer a question that says, what were the patterns of treatment of a disease? And I certainly can answer, what are the outcomes I got with different treatments? But is the data robust enough to allow me to compare treatment A to treatment B. Here, there is a lot of work that's being done, but the differences in the effectiveness between different treatments are relatively small differences. And so, we need to up our game from a methodologic standpoint so that we know that when we see a difference, that it's a real difference. The third point, which regulators are very concerned about, is Can you impute from such an analysis that treatment A was the cause of the outcome? When you have a randomized controlled trial, because none of the patients have been exposed and both the patient and the treatment organization do not know what they're giving, it's blinded, you have a very strong way of imputing causality. Nobody knew what they got. They were randomized to it, so we have taken care of confounding factors. And we get an outcome, and we're pretty sure that that outcome can be causally related to the fact that they got a treatment.
0: And the outcome you predicted in advance, it wasn't as though you just looked and saw what happened and said, ah, well, I have this outcome, therefore these correlate. If I gave a person a multiple myeloma drug and found out they ate more Twix bars, if I looked at enough data, I might find something like that. But it probably doesn't mean that multiple myeloma treatment makes people hanker for Twix.
1: Absolutely correct. So where we need to move to with the analysis of this real-world data is to put it on a similar footing to randomized controlled clinical trials. Exploring data is always useful because it generates new hypotheses. But exploring data and coming up with new hypotheses is not the same as having evidence that you want to recommend that people act upon, whether it be a regulator, an HTA authority, or an individual provider. If you want to act on that data, we have to put the process of doing this kind of research on a similar footing to randomized controlled clinical trials. You need to say, I am declaring, here's my hypothesis. I've told you in a protocol how I'm going to pursue that hypothesis. I've shown you my analytic plan about how I'm going to do it. And I'll register that on a public site so that you know this is what I did before I did it. And then they can do that analysis. And if they get the answer that they expected, you have greater confidence that you've dealt with potential confounding that can occur or that people who are cherry picking the results like the Twix example you talked about, which just can randomly happen. So we need to do that. And then we also need to come to an agreement about what is considered to be robust analytics to make sure that you've accounted for any and all confounding that you are aware of. You won't be able to deal with unknown confounding, but you should be able to show that you've dealt with all possible known confounders and have adjusted for it in your analytics.
0: Well, I think that provides us a path forward. And now I have a hankering for a Twix bar, so I think I might go get one. Cool. (laughs) Mark Berger, thanks so much for joining us on the Cineos Health Podcast.
1: All right, take care.
0: That's all for today's episode of the Sineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart, from Sineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health Cineos Health shortening the distance from lab to life.